Hello, everyone, and welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and adventures in warranty work. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. And this is episode 385. <laughs> so this week, we're going to talk about the, your, or I'd say the, your CNC, not just the, because there's lots of the CNCs. I, what's going through my mind is the Bugs Bunny communist meme, the our CNC. Our CNC. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been working feverishly on the CNC because I'm really trying to get this thing done. I kind of set myself a little bit of a goal to have it done by the end of the summer and really hoping to have that done sooner than that. So is it really summer when it doesn't get hot in Denver? Hey, it, you know, okay. <laughs> I know Parker's about to laugh at me, but it's been uncharacteristically cool here in Denver, actually. We've had an enormous amount of rain. We've almost had normal Texas amounts of rain here. And you got to remember that my climate is technically a desert, and we've had so much rain, but the rain finally stopped, and it got to like 86 the other day, and yesterday was 90 here. Ooh, and, uh, that's, that's warm. Yeah, no, it was spicy. I remember walking, getting out of work, and just the sun was beating down. I got in the car, and I was like, oh, it's actually hot. But it's nothing like Houston, where you would get in your car, and you couldn't touch the steering wheel. You'd have to, like, drive with your palms, because it was so hot. <laughs> My favorite thing is okay. Favorite thing is not uh, what I want. It's nobody's here. favorite thing no, about what you're about to say. The, thi- the notable, notable. Ah, uh, there we go. My notable, the notable thing about living in the South is you get in your car and you can't. It's it's hot in your car and muggy, right? So you start the car up, turn the air conditioner on, the first thing, and you kind of crack the windows to get the air out, right? And you go grab your sunglasses and you can't put the sunglasses on because the metal <laughs> rim is honestly like the surface of the sun on it your stings. face. Yeah. It stings. Yeah. That's that's one thing I haven't experienced elsewhere in the nation is the fact that you can't switch eyewear <laughs> because of how hot it is. <laughs> I mean, it was not unreasonable to get in your car and it's 120 to 130 degrees in your car. Yeah. Yeah. That is a thing there for months. I mean, the the whole thing about cooking eggs inside your car or bacon is a thing. There were, Oh, I need to find out if this is real or not, but someone in one of the automotive discords I'm in posted a recipe book of how to cook food on your engine. Okay. (laughs) And they had, and so you would like wrap it in foil and then put it on your intake manifold or your exhaust manifold. And like, there's a recipe for cooking like brisket, wrap it in foil and all the seasonings and stuff. And then you put it on there and then it says take an eight hour road trip. <laughs> okay. So what temperature does your exhaust manifold get to? Cause it's going to get above boiling, right? Oh yeah. Your exhaust is, oh, I know diesel is 1500 Fahrenheit. Well, apparently from the University of Washington says exhaust pipes uh, reach 1200 F. Yeah, they're pretty hot. I mean, it's hot enough to where stainless will turn colors. Right. Which I've seen plenty of people exaggerate that because they like the color change. Yes. It has that rainbow effect. I know titanium does it as well. 
the exhaust pipes I had on my old motorcycle actually had chrome exteriors that were just they were separated from the the pipes by about an eighth of an inch because the pipes were just stainless steel and then they put chrome covered plates over it to make them look nice but the stainless steel underneath was like a nasty brown color after just even just a few hours of riding yeah there's a couple different grades of stainless they use for exhaust and one i think it's like 304 is the kind that turns brown and it's not brown from rust it's just a discolor it's just an oxidization of the surface of this i mean rust is oxidization but when we say rust, you think steel and iron flaking apart. It's an oxidization on the surface of the stainless that it's a brown gold is a would be a fair color to call it. So stainless steel at f- is temperatures between 550 and 650 turns blue. It's brown near 450, 500. I don't know what they make pipes out of, but they turn that brown color way higher. So it must be some other alloy. It depends on the grade of stainless, too, because there's 304. So exhaust is typically, if it's stainless, it's typically 409 or 304 stainless, and they both look different after heating. So 304 is the lower grade. That's a lot of stainless exhaust is made out of, which turns brown. Yeah. It turns that brown gold is what it will turn into. Toast color. Toasty. Toasty brown. Yeah. I love blue stainless steel. Like when people purposefully blew it from temperature, it looks fantastic. TIG welding results in a bit of that too. Yeah, you get the little rainbow. If you're really talented at TIG, you can make that happen. I'm lucky enough to just not burn a hole in it. Colors is not your issue. No. Right? <laughs> One, did I blow a hole in it? Or two, is it actually sticking together? And is it a decent weld? <laughs> the the guys, the, what do they call them? Instagram welders. Yeah. Those guys that just weld art. One thing that, that I've noticed about those, I've seen some videos of guys doing that kind of welding. There's a very, very big difference in execution between Parker style of welding of stick it together and make sure it stays together. And the art welding, that's like, I'm going to make this Mona Lisa of metal. The time difference between those welds is immense. The guys who do the artwork stuff are so meticulous and they take forever to make it absolutely perfect. It takes infinitely longer to make those, the artwork, but man, is it cool. Yeah. Mine is how fast can I get this done? Yeah, because the, it's the destination, not the journey. Yeah, for me at least. With your stuff. With weld. Well, using any kind of tool is that way, though. The tool is there to enable you to get to the destination. You can flip that over because a lot of woodworkers I've known are the exact opposite, right? Where it's the journey to building the fancy turned pot or salad bowl, I guess. It's, it's more of the journey than <laughs> salad bowl. Or, or I, I, I yeah, had a yeah. neighbor that would turn really fancy like bowls and stuff like that. Yeah. And he had special fixtures that he would do and glue up the structure with like different cuts and stuff. Really intricate patterns and stuff. Yeah, they'd look awesome. So that always stuck out with me was like woodworkers make salad bowls. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true, but 
My, the well, one it's, I it's, know, it's sort of true. The one I know that's embedded in my brain is that, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welders make barbecue pits. True. So, like, the analogy of the Instagram welder making a fancy skull on a piece of metal versus salad bowls. The Instagram woodworkers, they do the resin pouring stuff where it's like a table where they mix up a different oh, color that's the resin new stuff and they do live edge tables with a river of resin going through the middle or for the guys who like the lathe turning they'll cut a burl in half and then put resin in between it and turn an egg out of yeah a, a burl you know well okay speaking of the journey this CNC project I've been doing recently. Yeah, back to CNC. I've been super lucky recently because I've had a string of evenings that I have just been able to dedicate to the CNC, which has been really nice because I'm in a super monotonous period of work with the CNC. I've been working on the control box, which is just a boatload of wiring. And I've been trying so hard to avoid the Mad Max style of wiring, like actually put some effort into making it look nice. And my original intent was to do a, uh, how do I put this, more professional version of a control cavity than I've done in the past, just because I want this to last for a very long time. But my budget is landing somewhere between Mad Max and professional. So I'm pleased with how my results have gone so far, but I haven't been able to do the wire management that I was really wanting to do. Because previously, when I was originally designing the box, I knew all the elements of the box that I wanted, and I wanted to do cable trays everywhere. Because when you look at like a really nicely laid out control cabinet for machinery, there's usually cable trays and you don't get to actually see the, the nest of wires. Yeah, that, that's the whole point. Cable trays is just hides the mess. Yeah, yeah. No, here's the thing. If you take the tops off of cable trays, you get to see the ugliness. It's like an engine cover on modern cars. Right, you know, 100%. Just so the hide stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's this nice piece of plastic that when you lift the hood, you're like, oh, this looks great. But then you take it off and you're like, oh, oh okay, that's that's where the sausage is made. Yes. What I've realized with, with control cabinets is if you want that cleanliness level, you end up paying for it in real estate. So the end result is everything is wired professionally. Everything is done well, there's nothing functionally different between the box that I have and say, I don't know, a Haas electronics control box other than a lot of money, right? And a logo on the front. And a logo, right, right, right. And I've look, I'm not trying to necessarily compare myself to a professional company, but the thing about my box that I'm just a little bit disappointed is just like, ah, there's even with my controlled wiring, there's a little bit of messiness. I think I'm going to try to spend a little bit of time wrapping my wires so they don't look as Mad Max. Let's just put it that way. What are you going to wrap them in? Harness tape or like zip tie? I already have zip ties on them. I think I'm going to get harness tape because I have a few zip ties just for making sure things are staying in the right spot. But I think if they're bundled and wrapped so you just don't see the exposed looms, let's just put it that way, then uh, things will overall look a little bit nicer and the only people who are ever going to see this is me anytime i have to open the box which i'm designing it so i don't have to open the box and the tweet that i post out when this is done and the slack channel whenever i post this done so i'm fretting something that is 
unnecessary. Do you want me to bring you a roll of really nice harness tape? I got tons of it. Why not? Everyone should start a podcast so they can just <laughs> they can get rolls of tape from their other podcast host. So I'm pleased with how everything has gone so far. Everything has been pretty straightforward. I did a lot of pre-planning on where everything goes in this box. And of course, this box has a, um, a pull-out back plate. So you can plan everything out, drill it, mount all of your electronics and drop them in the box. That makes things a lot easier. So this is some Tessa 51036 authentic Tessa tape. Because if you go... What that is, it, that's an upgrade from wrapping everything in electrical tape. Oh, no, this is the stuff that Mercedes <laughs> wraps their harnesses I'm, in. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm totally joking. I cringe when I see people wrap stuff in electrical tape. Yeah, yeah. For, first of all, w one thing that I think people don't realize is that electrical tape has glue that is activated when you stretch it. And so I see a lot of people just spinning electrical tape on it, and then they put it in an environment like Houston, and it just becomes bubblegum in like a day. It turns to goo. It just turns to goo that you will never get off. So electrical tape, first of all, you have to stretch it to activate the adhesive on it, and then don't use it. <laughs> like yeah. don't don't use it if it's going outside in a hot humid environment yeah even the good stuff which is like the 3m super 88 stuff yeah just does not last under any kind of heat let alone an engine bay i would use electrical tape let's say in a junction box in my house i i would i think it'd be acceptable to use for something but there. to make sure the nut doesn't back off exactly exactly for simple applications like that but electrical tape is not intended to be a permanent mechanical bond don't use it for that <laughs> no it's not but this this harness tape is some pretty good stuff so everyone out there that's doing harnesses for automotive get tessa that's five one zero three six but be careful because there's a lot of like Especially on Amazon. I think I bought this from Amazon, but I bought it from like the authentic dealer and made sure it came from them because there's a lot of sellers that will sell you fake Tessa tape and the adhesive just is not good. It will do the same thing where like it just starts unraveling itself. Yep. And it will still be sticky, but it's not sticky enough to stick to itself anymore. But um, this stuff's good. Really good. If whatever adhesive is on gaff tape if there was electrical tape with gaff tape adhesive, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Gaff tape gets gummy too. This though. stuff is closer to gaff tape than electrical tape. Yeah. But it's not as sticky as gaff tape, for sure. Electrical tape just turns into snot if it's above 70 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> it's like gallium then. Oh, God, it's awful. You know what? I wonder why, let's say you took gaff tape and you wrapped a harness in it. There's no way you're going to take that tape off to do anything else with that harness. Yeah. Which could be a good thing, but usually you will have to go into that harness at a later date to either add a wire or repair a wire. So you do need the outside to be removable in some way. Yeah. Which is why a lot of people or a lot of automotive will use like split loom. Yep. So they only have harness tape at the ends that are exposed and then the majority is a loom. So it's easier to maintain. Hmm. I hate split loom though. We were talking about this a couple podcasts ago, but even like, I think actually it was like two nights ago, me and you were like chatting after work, talking about wiring. Cause you were, you were starting to do the wiring of your, your box and you were like, you were not looking forward to it. And I'm like, you know, I thought, I, I thought the same way with wiring cars. Like I've wired a lot of cars and I started to dread it 
And it ended up because I really didn't like using the nylon split loom. Because at the end of the day of wire, like end of Saturday, wiring chew all day. Chew up your hands, right? It would just chew your hands up. And it wouldn't be like tearing your skin up. It's just for, even with the proper like inserting tools, it just eats your hand up. And so like at the end of the day, it feels like you have like arthritis. In it your just hands. rubs it raw, basically. <laughs> and like you're just sore. Yeah. Your hands are just sore. Right. And then I switched to the soft style loom, which again, not as robust maybe but most of the time you don't need it to be robust most of the time i'm using it to make it look nice that's okay so that's one of my big goals here okay here's the thing with with my cnc controller it's a box that it's getting all the movement it will ever receive in its entire life right now so once i'm done i'm going to affix it to the frame and the only time it will ever move is if i ever move from this house yeah which I have no plans to anytime soon. So it's going to receive very, very, very little mechanical stress whatsoever. And because of that, I was like, okay, I'm going to use whatever wire I have lying around the house. And I had some really fairly heavy gauge solid core wire. And most of the time, I don't like wiring things with solid core wire. If it's going to jiggle or move or whatever, I'd rather use stranded. But you know what? I'm using this project as an excuse to just plow through all the rest of the wire that I had. Cause I have so many spools that are partially full and it's great because this project is consuming a lot of those. So a good chunk of this entire project is done in solid core. It's like 14 gauge, 12 gauge. It's, it's pretty chonky stuff. That's pretty big. Yeah. Especially for solid core. Yeah. And the funny thing was I bought these spools of solid core wire in 2011 and I've had them for that long and I still have chunks on them because most of the time when I'm using solid core wire like that it has a very specific purpose it's like a bus wire or something like that where I know I'm gonna hook a bunch of stuff to it and so on my projects I'll need like a foot of it well I don't know I bought like 250 feet of two colors back in 2011 or something like that and so I've been chewing up these spools for many 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 years I decided to run all of the power in this box on this solid core 12 gauge or whatever it is this chunky stuff so I have no qualms about uh, any kind of current handling which is another thing. One thing that I'm not I'm completely unsure about right now is I don't actually know what the load of my CNC is. So in other words, I don't know what kind of breaker I need for this box. I know I have a 2.2 kilowatt spindle and I have five drives that have five power supplies that are all 60 volt, six amps. So let's just pretend the machine was fully loaded. Like the machines were... Like all this, everything was moving max speed. You're moving as fast as you can and you're hogging the biggest cut of its life. Right. So, <laughs> and it's on a diagonal. So like all the axes are moving. Yeah. And the Z is like going down into the, the yeah. material. Like what kind of load would that present to the wall? Is that even like a 10 amp load on a 220 circuit? I don't even know. So right now I don't have a breaker in my box because I just don't even know what to size it at. If I were to get like a 30 amp breaker and the thing is only pulling two amps, then am I really even protecting anything with that? Does it even matter at that point? So I don't even know how I'm going to figure that out. I, th I think I'm going to try to just like do a worst case scenario, figure out what that is, add 
10% to that, and that's my breaker. I would say size it whatever the wire is connecting your machine to the wall. What's no. that gauge? Uh, <laughs> oh, what? I, I would not do that. And the reason why I wouldn't do that is because I have a 50 amp, 220 volt RV cable. Well, what's inside the box? And the reason why I have that is because someone gave it to me and it was long enough that I could span that across my basement. Okay. What about then? What's the gauge that this current has to go across then? You've got this big connector that comes into the box. Yeah. And then that goes over to all the bricks that I have for distribution. That's a 10 gauge, two 10 gauge wires, basically. So I would size it to 10 gauge. Size it beneath 10 gauge. Right? Yeah. So Just your 10 beneath. gauge does not become a fusible link. Right. Okay. <laughs> this is this is real rough engineering, right? No, it's here. not. You're sizing to protect the wire. <laughs> Because that's the one thing I care about in this. Well, no, it's like if one of your drives shorts out, like it goes bad, that's what you're protecting against, and decides to become a dead short, the worst case scenario is your wire melting and catching fire. That's what would happen. Here's the thing. 10 gauge is 30 amps. Yeah. The max operational load of the CNC is well beneath 30 amps. I know that for sure. But I don't know how much. Is it... Five amps nominal with 10 amps max, I might pick 15 amps as my breaker at that point. Well, no, because you're thinking of keeping it close to the operational parameters where you shouldn't even have to think about it. You just need to make sure that when something does bad happen, it doesn't catch fire. Well, you're thinking about like critical situation. You're thinking of like, yeah. oh shit situation. If something shorts out. Yeah. So how I designed my brewery box is I went, okay, I had all my bricks, my Lego bricks of, of all my contactors and stuff, and I sized all the wires going the current that they needed. And then the size of my breakers, I'm like, okay, I size this at six gauge. What is the max, what is the rated safety for that six gauge? And I size the breaker to that, my breaker to that. So that I know that even if the device basically shorts out, which is the worst case scenario that what it's powering, I won't melt the wire. It will break the breaker and that's safe. I mean, you plug in a LED light into a 20 amp house circuit all the time, but they make sure that that whole circuit can handle that 20 amps. Right. So if your LED light bulb ends up becoming a dead short, you don't burn your house down (laughs) because all that wiring's rated to hold that 20 amps. I think the better way of saying it is the breaker will break before the maximum ampacity of the wire. Yes. And that's what you should be designing. So if you have 10 gauge is where your current is, then you should make sure your breaker protects that 10 gauge wire. Well, but here's where your assumptions are potentially wrong. The only reason why I have 10 gauge is because I had it lying around. There was no need for me to actually have 10 gauge. No, that's fine though. But like if, one of your device shorts, it's going to pull as much current as it wants because it's a dead short, right? Yeah. And it's going to pull up. But I don't need to arbitrarily have that number be higher just because I picked 10 gauge. So you want to be lower just to be lower. I'm saying is you can just pick whatever the gauge is and then that's your number and that's it it would be totally safe. Yeah, I agree with you. Some UL engineer is going to be yelling at me right now, but... (laughs) What I love about this is this is so highly academic, 
what we're going through right now, this argument, because frankly, I could probably just arbitrarily pick a moderately low breaker and I'd be fine for the whole life of this machine, right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> that is a good school of thought, though. If you know your load and then you pick an appropriate wire to be able to handle that load, you can then size the breaker appropriate for the whole circuit. Yes. But like I said, the arbitrariness of my wire gauge is based on what I had on the shelf. <laughs> so that shouldn't necessarily define okay. the breaker, but it could. Yeah, I did size my wiring for my loads. So mine was just, oh, that's really big. Great. Stick it in there. <laughs> also, the cable that I have that's going to this control box is eight gauge, which handles 55 amps. Yeah, well, you have a big old RV cable. I have an RV cable because, man, I, so when I, we first moved to Colorado, I went on Craigslist looking for actually the desk that I'm sitting at right now because I was looking for something from my basement that I could do the podcast at. And I found a guy who was not far from the house who was just giving something away and it's this nice desk. And so I hit him up and he's like, yeah, come by, grab it. So I ended up having like a two hour conversation with this dude. He was this cool guy that was a, he designed something interesting. In fact, after I got the desk, I found pieces of his designs all over that he didn't clean up from it. <laughs> but regardless, I was leaving the house and he was telling me this story where him and his wife were selling his house and they bought an RV and they were going to just leave and go travel around the nation. He was retiring and he was like, Oh, I bought this RV cable and it doesn't work with my RV. And he's like, you're an electrical engineer. Do you want this RV cable? And I was like, hell yeah. So I got, I don't remember, I think it's like 50 feet of eight gauge cable, which like, if you know enough about that, that's not yeah. cheap. You know, that's, that's money right, right there. Right there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And with the connectors on it. So when I was first designing this CNC, I was like, well, I'm using that. Even though like, there's no need to have eight gauge wire yeah, go to my no CNC. Need. But I have it, so might as well use it. In fact, I have two of those cables because I have one for my brew rig and one for the CNC now. The brew rig actually needs it because it's 10,000 watts. The yeah. CNC, I'm guesstimating that, so with a 2.2 kilowatt spindle, I'm guesstimating max load, I'm adding another 1,500 watts on top of that. So we're talking about a, a little less than 4,000 watts max load on the CNC at 220 volts. So I think if I just size a breaker for that amount, I'll be fine because there's the thing about CNC power draw is the load is so dynamic. Mm -hmm. like, it's so hard to determine like, what are you doing? Because it depends on what you're cutting. It depends on how fast you're going. It depends on how many axes are moving. It depends on everything. And the difference between standstill and max load can be enormous. So it's really hard to size a breaker for that. I wonder if there's any benefits to doing, because on the stepper motors or server motors, you can adjust the current draw. I wonder if there's any benefit to making your CNC a constant load in terms of stability. Adjusting the current poles so that the average current is the same. There's a lot of benefits of that all the way down to your quality of cut. If you can guarantee that your spindle is seeing the same load the entire time in terms of how hard you're pushing it into yeah. something, not only that, your bit 
the end mill will be happy. End mills like to be loaded and they like to be constantly loaded in a very particular way. And if you could guarantee that, basically constant torque cutting. Yeah, cutting is a good term for it. Then you're going to get really good cuts. That's one of the hardest things with CNCs is because they have to stop, turn, accelerate, make movements in multiple axes. And then if you're cutting something like I'm going to be doing with wood, where you have grain directions in different directions going things, and then knots, well... I don't buy this stuff with knots, but you potentially could. Then getting constant torque is really hard because you have to have VFD feedback that is watching the load and responding very quickly to it. It's, yeah, I think in a lot of situations, most of the time they just overpower things and just push through it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Actually, one thing that's fun, if you're designing a CNC for cutting wood, Using a hand router is actually a really enlightening experience to like push a hand oh, router through wood use it by and hand, feel yes. with your hands what your machine has to do. Yeah. It's not a matter of like, I have to push really hard to make sure that this CNC goes through. It's more about understanding, oh, this is why my machine needs to be stiff. Because sometimes it's really easy to get a router through something. Sometimes it's really, really hard. And stiffness works in both directions, right? Stiffness works towards, I need to push really hard to get through this section, but I also need to hold my machine back so it doesn't claw its way through the next section. Yeah, it doesn't want to go feed through itself. Right, right, right. In fact, gosh, way early on in this podcast, we talked to a robotics company that did robotic arms, remember? The uh, non-compliance, too. So, like, there were not stiff robotic arms. That was the thing that their engineers were really pushing on. It's like, how do you make something fast, accurate, and stiff at the same time? It's These are mutually exclusive mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And on top of that, how do you do that for a reasonable amount of money and a reasonable amount of power? All of these variables go into a motion machine. And so with my CNC, I'm really kind of gearing it towards... I know stiffness is one of my bigger issues that I want to overcome because power is not a problem for me. I'm not cutting stainless steel. I want as stiff as possible given my budget because the power needed to cut through plywood is not that much. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the wiring's going well. I'm actually hoping to get something moving maybe even tonight because I put all of, gosh, I've spent so much time designing all of the connectors that needs to go through. I sent Parker a picture of the side of my control cabinet. I don't remember how many connectors like I have. 30 connectors. Yeah, I have. I, it's <laughs> it's not 30, but it's more than 20. I guarantee you that. So wiring all of those, I actually ended up going with aviation connectors for most of those, mainly because my steppers already came with aviation connectors on them. So in order to connect extension cables. And you learned all the naming conventions for those. You know what's funny? I didn't screw them up this time because I (laughs) screwed it up some other time before. (laughs) The GX16 cables or connectors. It's the mounting hole size, not the diameter of the plug. They're 5 8 inch mounting holes for all of those connectors. So I've got a bunch of 4 pins and a bunch of 7 pins on this box now. And I've made one mistake so far that's annoying and I think I have to fix it tonight and it's just like ah I'm beating myself up about it on the seven pin connectors I thought I only needed six wires on them so I was like great I'll leave one of these pins unconnected 
well, I totally forgot that my cable has a shield on it. Yeah, sure, it has six wires, but it also has a shield that needs to be grounded. And of course, the one connector, the one pin on the connector that I didn't solder is the one that's right in the middle. So think of a DIN style circular. Ah. I, I soldered and heat shrunk all the wires around it. And so you can't... So I can't access oh, it. Oh, you're going to have to undo one. I have to cut the heat shrink on at least one, desolder it so I can reach the middle and solder a new wire into there. So I have to do a little backtrack. Or I would move the shield to the outside. I would desolder and move that one to the middle and then put your shield on the outside. Either way, it doesn't Either matter. Way. The pinout is arbitrary. I get to pick it. So... Yeah, it's. I'm like, ah, oh, God, that's annoying. So whatever. At least it's only four. Only four of these connectors I have to fix. It's just they're now buried down in the machine. <laughs> and so I have to dodge a bunch of stuff with a soldering iron to get down in there. But whatever. You make mistakes and you, you fix them. Yeah, so, that always happens. So, yeah, okay. Box is, is getting wired. I hope to have some motion coming up here soon. The next thing is I've been doing a lot of 3D printing to make brackets and stuff for this machine. For instance, I made a bracket that just holds the drag chain. So, you know, when the gantry moves across, I have an actual drag chain carrier for all of the cabling and the cooling wires and all that stuff that goes through it. But my 3D printer is not terribly large. I have a Monoprice Mini Delta 2, which has a circular print base that is 110 millimeters in diameter, which isn't terrible, but if we're talking about mechanical brackets for stuff, it's highly limiting in terms of its size. Mm -hmm. Especially because if you're trying to make rectangular or square stuff, you have to waste a lot fit of space. a square into a circle. You end up really, really reducing your print size. And so my question is, at what point does it make sense to actually bite the bullet and go buy a new 3D printer that has a bigger print bed? Or do you bite the bullet and break your prints into pieces and glue them together and make something bigger? Buy a bigger printer. Because <laughs> even on my printer, I've done the break apart and glue, and I do not like doing it. It's really hard to hold tolerances when you got to glue stuff together. Yeah, it's just one thing I'm running into right now is, so my VFD has a control panel that is removable. And in order to activate the VFD into run mode, you physically have to press a button on this thing. You cannot cut anything on my CNC until you go over to the VFD panel and you press run on this thing. So my VFD is located inside of my control panel. I don't want to open my control panel every time I turn on my CNC to press the run button. So I bought a ribbon cable to extend the length of this control panel from the VFD. And my idea is I want to cut a slot in the control box and mount the panel up there. Well, it doesn't really mount very flush or cleanly. It doesn't even have any mounting bezel or holes or anything like that. So my plan is to 3D print something, but my 3D printer is not big enough to do that. So I could break it into four pieces, print them, glue them together for this whole thing, or I could go buy a new 3D printer that's big enough to do it all in one piece. I don't want to do that, but I want to do that. And so that's my whole question is, how much pain does it take? Can you send me the design and then I can print it and then buy oh, it to you? I didn't even think about that. Oh, that's a great idea. Well, but you'd have to print it like today or tomorrow. Right? That's fine. The printer's right there. I haven't designed it yet. 
Oh, that's a problem. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> I'm not bringing the printer up. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think about that. I, uh, I should have thought. You know what? There, I do have a buddy at work that has a full size. I shouldn't say full size. There is no such thing as a full size. I have a buddy at work that has a larger 3D printer. <laughs> <laughs> full size printer. I would very much classify mine as a mini. Yours is definitely the economy box of 3D printers. Mine is these, like about as small as it gets. It's the Geo Metro of... No, the Geo Metro is definitely the one I had at the Fab at one time. Remember that little tiny one I had? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was like three inch by three inch bed. Yeah, it was tiny. Yeah, that, that was the Geo Metro. You've got the Ford Focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when you go to rent a car and they have the economy model, yeah. that's that's what I have. Yeah. I've got like a, it's only 200 by 200 by 200. It's bigger than yours, but that's like a, it's a compact SUV, a station wagon. It, that's the station wagon. Okay, so let me ask you, 200 by 200 by 200 is... 2x my size, but it's square. So I would, uh, let's just say two and a half x my size because you don't have to square a circle. So do you find that that is big enough for most of your jobs or do you want bigger? I want bigger. I've only had three prints that are too big. Okay. And you print pretty regularly. Yeah. That's about that 200 number is about the normal-ish size for 3D printers. What is... Just it's like eight and a half inches. Yeah, two hundred millimeters in freedom units is seven point eight seven inches. Oh, I overestimated. I'm sorry. You see, the thing that I think is funny about my printer is it does a hundred millimeters circular, but its Z height is like seven inches. <laughs> like, yeah, you can just make vases all day. But the thing about it is, when you're printing a bracket, it doesn't like most of the time. I don't need a lot of Z on the bracket. I need no, X, don't. Y. <laughs> That's a lot of Y yeah, or a lot of X. Yeah. It's the same problem that resin printers have. Resin printers have a lot of the inexpensive ones, have a very small X, Y, but a really tall Z. They have a bunch of Z. No, that's changed. There's some big ones out there for like a couple of grand now. I, I, that, my next printer, I think I'm actually going to buy another, what I have here, a one how duplicator D6 and just slap the same upgrades that I have on this machine on it and be able to print what's called TPU, which is like a rubbery flexible. So I can, all I want to do with it is print bushings for cars and isolators for cars. Cause I, I started taking apart the checker, 1965 checker. There's so much rubber between metal and stuff that you just can't get anymore. Or like the brackets that hold the radiator have a rubber saddle for them. Mm-hmm. You take it apart and immediately deteriorates dust. That's so like, well, you got to build those because no one makes those anymore. And so it's like, oh, it'd be perfect to just model it and print it. And that TPU is an industrial material and can easily handle the temperatures and the oil and grease and grime. It'd be perfect. Elegoo has a Saturn three, which uses a 12K resolution screen. Yeah. Which that gives you an effective pixel resolution of 24 micrometers. 24 micrometers is a little less than one thousandth of an inch, which is like, holy crap, that's awesome. We have Star Trek replicators. Like, yeah. we have them. There's the only thing right is it here. can't make it can't make food yet. Yeah, yeah. You can't, you can't, <laughs> I can't just turn my 3D printer to say Earl Grey hot, you know? 
I mean, I guess I could. It would just make something really gross. <laughs> I was going to say pepperoni pizza, but sure. Yeah, 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 a different Star Trek series. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the American one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thing about it is that that I've been digging now into 3D printing. What Parker and I have talked about many times in the past, like it is a tool. It is now a tool in my toolbox that for this CNC project, it has been fantastic to just like, I need a bracket that holds a thing or screws into a thing or just expands my capabilities without me turning towards some material that I don't want on there. 3D printer is fantastic. The thing about it is like, I would love to buy a 3D printer that expands my capability. But as soon as I'm done with this CNC, would I use it much? Like it's, it seems very situational. Like if I need it, it's awesome. If I don't need it, it just sits there. You start, the great thing is you're starting to use it now. Mm -hmm. And so when you start working on your next project, you will start to realize the power of that machine and be able to build brackets that fit your applications instead of having to fab up some aluminum or whatever, or wood or whatever. You go, like, oh, actually a PLA bracket will be perfectly fine for that application and you just print it instead. Here's the what you're getting at, but saying it in a different way. I would start thinking about the 3D printing from the beginning as opposed to as soon as I need it. From day one, when I was designing this machine, I wasn't thinking about 3D printed brackets, but now I am. If I were to design another CNC, I might build them in as soon as I had just a 3D model of it. You know when you, you need a spacer for a project and you yep. go to like Ace Hardware and you have to spend $4.50 for that, a nylon bushing? Yeah. Right? And it might not even be the right size you want, but it's close enough to work. But you said I'd spend $4.50 for it? Well, guess what? I go 10 minutes in Autodesk Fusion, design the exact one I need, and hit print. And then I get the perfectly sized spacer I want. Exactly. And I've got black PLA on my printer right now. And most of my CNC is either gray or black. And I've got 3D printed stuff on there. And if I took a picture right now, you wouldn't know what parts are 3D printed. Not that that's necessarily a problem, but what I'm saying is it still looks professional. It still looks good. And for instance, one of my stepper motors I purchased came with a longer stem or shaft than my 3D model. So when I originally 3D modeled this thing, I was able to mate this stepper motor flush with some of the pieces I had. Well, okay, so I buy one with a longer shaft on it. I've got two options. I can take an angle grinder and cut the shaft on my stepper motor, which isn't terrible, or I could just 3D print some quick little spacers that shift up the, the stepper motor. So I opted for that because I don't want to take an angle grinder to my, my brand new stepper motor. Things like that are absolutely fantastic, especially with Fusion 360, because I know how to use it quickly enough that I was able to just design something. And while it prints, I go work on something else, pop them off, done. That's the power. That is where it exists. Like I just so little effort and I get exactly what I'm looking for. Also, I'm going to mention something about Ace Hardware or just not Ace, any hardware store. There is a special level of hell for people who take <laughs> hardware and put it in the wrong drawer at 
hardware stores. Like if That's you're going and you're trying to buy like a 632 by one inch screw and you put it in the bag and you get home and you find out that it was three quarters of an inch because some loser put it in the wrong bucket. Yes, there's a very specific place in hell for those people. It's the one they were supposed to go to like the sixth layer hell, but they actually end up the seventh because it's just mislabeled. The hardware. Yeah. <laughs> <They're> mislabeled. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, that's so good. Yeah, I like that. You know, I have to admit, I'm that weirdo that I have actually spent time before at a hardware store reorganizing their drawers. Like I've literally pulled out handfuls of screws because they were all wrong and I helped organize them because I've been screwed too many times by this. I'm passing it on to the next guy. Yeah, yeah. I'm helping that dude who comes out and because I've literally had to drive back to a hardware store and get new hardware because my project was screwed. Yeah, I bet you... The people listening to this podcast, that's more than 60% of the people yeah. who has had that happen to them. And here's the thing. Don't be that guy. For the love of God, don't be that guy. <laughs> no, no, but, I'm but, saying it has happened where they bought the wrong part because- Oh, no, no, I'm not saying, I'm not accusing people. Yeah, no, they've had that happen to them. I'm also saying, don't be the guy who throws it in the wrong oh, yeah. bin. No, no, our listeners are actually impeccable at returning items to the perfect bins. Yeah, absolutely. The best. You get screwed by that once or twice. You learn to check when you're at yeah, the hardware you learn store. To check I measure every single time. Every, every time? Because, oh, my, it's the worst. Pull 1032. Make sure it threads into the 1032. Make sure it's the right Yeah, length. they have a little thing that you can thread into there. Yep, yeah, they have it there. And it's there yeah. for a reason because they know that guy shops there. So you <laughs> need to check. <laughs> and it's not their fault. No, it's not. Next week on the podcast, we'll talk about the adventures and warranty work with the box truck because that's a great story. But till then, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Organize your bolts. Thank you, yes, you, for putting your bolts back in the right bins and downloading this podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack.